Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to gather and bring the Word of Christ to you, to sit underneath that Word and to worship along with you as well this morning. If you would, stay in your Bibles here, Mark chapter 9. That's where we will be. When something is hard, difficult, confusing, what we need in that moment is some level of confirmation, right? Some level of assurance that we are headed on the right track. I love hiking. Spent a lot of time hiking in college out western North Carolina. Love Appalachian Trail, all the trails around there in the Smoky Mountains. And I will say there's been a time or two where I've been a little bit confused if I am on the right trail or not. And what happens when you get to that point? You look for things. You are looking for your personal experience, what you're seeing, the topography, to match what you're seeing on the map. Or if you do not have a map, you are looking for these little trail markers that are on trees and they're in shapes like a a red circle or a blue square. You're looking for that identity marker on the trail to tell you you're on the right trail and you are headed in the right direction. This is especially important if you're up in those mountains, you're on a descent. Like I'm about to go down all the way down through this off this mountain. This better be in the right direction. Because I do not want to come back up. So that moment when you see that, that little symbol and it hits you, it clicks. Yes, I'm in the right direction. There's confirmation. Confirmation is good. It's especially good when we're going through difficulty, confusion. And what we're going to see today in our text is that the disciples are in need of some confirmation. Last week, We saw Jesus share with the disciples, Jesus speaking, one of the most shocking, hard, difficult teachings that they've ever heard come out of his mouth. Jesus is saying that he is going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead, and it's blowing their minds. They're expecting a political Messiah. They don't have a category for this. Peter gets in the way. Jesus calls him Satan. Like they're thinking the the things of Satan, not the things of God, the things of man. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, and this also means something to you. You're going to wear a cross. If you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up this cross, an instrument of execution and death. And so for the disciples, they're they're reeling right now, a bit in a panic, like what is going on with our master? Has he lost it? And are we doomed for? Like, where is this thing going? Can we get some confirmation, Jesus? Because this is challenging. And Jesus comes in today, as we'll see, very graciously to help his disciples. We're going to see the identity and the mission of Jesus confirmed to his disciples in four different ways. To comfort them and to ready them for what they are about to experience in first seeing Jesus and then in their own lives as disciples. And maybe this morning we are going through something difficult, suffering darkness, confusion. Life is hard, and we're needing a glimpse of God's glory. Would God meet us today like He's meeting the disciples to comfort them in their grief, in their sorrow, in their confusion? To tell them and to point them and to affirm to them that yes, you are on the right direction. Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus is with us even in suffering, and Jesus will bring us through suffering if we will continue to follow him. Let's pray for the Lord's help as we dive into this text. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you are a speaking God and we ask you to make us a listening people this morning. God, open up our ears to hear your word. Not the words of Matthew, but the words of Christ. God, would you speak to all of our hearts? Would you proclaim and affirm the glories of your Son. You have been about your Son for eternity, making Him beautiful, making Him the prize of all your people. Would you do that today, God? Would you overwhelm us with the glory of your Son, Jesus? Would you cause our hearts to long for Him and to be satisfied in Him? Do that today for your glory. Amen. Okay, so the first point here, the identity and mission of Jesus confirmed by his glorious appearance. Verses 2 and 3, and after six days, so again, this is right after what we saw last week, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So Jesus takes these three disciples up this mountain. This is not a small mountain. Most would think this is Mount Horeb, which is, I think, like 9,000 feet up. It's a climb. And here goes Jesus. He's taking them up there. And you're probably thinking as a disciple, like, what is going on? Where are we going? Why is Jesus taking us up here on this mountain? They get up there. It is perfectly quiet. There's no one around. It's a beautiful picture and horizon. And then it hits them with what? Jesus was doing. Jesus is transfigured before them, literally changes shape. He becomes something different than he was before. Their eyes see Jesus in a way that they did not see Jesus before. And Mark makes a special point that his clothes became uh, dazzling, radiant as white, uh, unlike anything on earth could bleach them. In other words, saying that, that Jesus is appearing in such a way that it's coming from like the other side. We're getting a glimpse into the spiritual realm right now. The spiritual realm is breaking into our realm unlike anything that the earth could do. This is an otherworldly sort of vision. And Jesus is dazzling in His appearance. This purity of white light that's shining out from Jesus and the disciples are terrified. Like this is the, when the presence of God shows up, it's not usually something you get excited about. You, you're afraid because the presence of God can kill you. No man can stand in the presence of God. And they have a history of this sort of thing. They're, they're probably thinking in their, in their brains when this is even happening, there was another mountain. It's famous in the Bible. Mount where Moses went up the mountain and Moses met with God. There's a history of God meeting his people on mountaintops. And here we go again. And if we remember Moses, he was up there. God was giving him the law. The things that Moses was staring into and looking into was, uh, caused his face to, to glow and become radiant. And he comes down the mountain. He's got to put a veil over his face so nobody can look at his face. Because he's reflecting the glory of God that he's just seen on that mountain in the presence of God and in the law of God. There's something very uniquely different about this text, what's happening here in this moment. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God to the disciples. Jesus is the source of the light. 
He's not reflecting. He is the source. The beams of light are coming out of his essence, out of his nature. That is what they are seeing. This is a a clear demonstration that Jesus is God in the flesh. The curtain has been peeled back on his humanity, his full humanity, son of Adam. And we're seeing that he is God in the flesh, son of God, clearly displayed to the disciples. We learn in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of God. He is the exact radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Bible articulates a picture of Jesus and a person of Jesus who is God. What does God look like? What does God think like? What does God do? We look to Jesus. This person in the flesh is the exact image of God. Jesus is here with the disciples. The glory of God gets revealed to them, confirming the identity and the mission of Jesus. And next we see that it's also confirmed by God's servants. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So already in this very crazy scene, where Jesus' clothes turn bright as white, in poofs, Elijah and Moses, in bodily form. They're here. They're standing here with them, and they're having a little chat. Things are crazy. And what is going on with these two? Why these two characters? These two characters are big characters in the Old Testament, but they're also big in terms of what they represent. And oftentimes we'll see in the Bible these two names used to represent big bodies of Scripture. So Moses, the law came to Moses. Moses represents the law of God. And Elijah, a prophet of God, often is referred to as representing the prophets. And so what you have here in the, in the appearance of Elijah and Moses is a representation of all of the Scripture. Two figures that are representing the scripture are here. And even more than that, there is this awareness for the Jews in first century. They are on the backside of the the last couple verses in Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. There's 400 years of silence and people are waiting for the coming Messiah. I'm going to read uh, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So there's Moses. And then verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So major dots are getting connected here. We've been looking at Jesus. He is the Christ They've got this prophecy in the back of their heads, the last prophecy that was given, that Moses and when Elijah comes specifically, that is going to be the forerunning to the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And so major dots between this transfiguration, here's Jesus, he is the one who's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And what are they doing? They're having a little chat It's like, what are they talking about? Jesus and Moses and Elijah just chatting up here on this mountain. What are they talking about? Well, Luke chapter 9 actually tells us. 
And Luke says that they are talking about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. They are talking about the way that Jesus is going to die. That's what they're talking about. This is a confirmation to the disciples that all of Scripture is pointing to this Christ. All of the law, all of the prophets, everything that we've ever seen in our Bibles is all pointing to this man, Jesus, who is the Christ. And more than that, as we learned last week, that this Christ must now suffer. To inaugurate the kingdom of God, it must come on the backside of suffering. As one scholar put it this way, I found this very interesting. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, the accomplishment of the Messianic sufferings was the central consideration. You know, we first read this and it's just all glory and up into the clouds and that's where we want to be. And it's like, if you're like Peter, it's like, can we, can we just not talk about the cross anymore? I don't want to deal with suffering, but yet we're looking on this Mount of Glory and the cross is right there. Jesus is not leaving the cross. They're terrified and Peter has to say something. Peter's always speaking and he says, let's make some tents. I'll make three tents, one for you, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, at best, that's Peter offering some hospitality. What do you do when guests show up? You give them some housing. Peter wants to help out. But worst case, Peter is trying to grab. He's trying to grab this moment. Can we stay here on the mountaintop? This is good. This is good to be here. Let's stay here. Let's get some tents and let's just hang out. I don't want to go back down off this mountain. I don't want to talk about a cross. I don't want to talk about suffering. Suffering surely should not be a part of the equation for salvation. And we see here clearly, no, it is. We can't get away from the cross. Jesus is saying, if you want me to fulfill Scripture, because I love you so much, I'm not going to move away from a cross. I'm going to enter into suffering. It's incredibly confirming to the disciples here to see Scripture and God's servants testifying to Christ and His mission. Thirdly, we see the identity and mission of Jesus confirmed by God's voice. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. Again, this cloud reminds us of the presence of God. There was a cloud back on Mount Sinai with Moses. A cloud, a cloud of glory. We see the cloud showing up in other times in the Bible, in the tent, in the tabernacle. There's a cloud. It's unlike any other cloud you would see. It's, I don't know exactly what it would have been like, but you know that is no normal cloud. That is a manifest presence of God, and it shows up. It shows up in a cloud. It's terrifying. And it says that they are overtaken by this cloud. It overwhelms them, wraps around them. And out of this cloud comes a voice. Much like the baptism of Jesus where we heard, this is my beloved son. Same voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. A voice speaking from a cloud. Better listen to that when, when that is happening. 
And what God is saying through this cloud to the disciples is, you've listened to my servants. You're passionate about my word. You've listened to Moses and Elijah. Now listen to my son. Listen to him. He is the fulfillment of all the scripture. And now he is the one with the authoritative power to interpret and to be all that scripture was ever meant to be. Scripture testifies about him, points to him, is revealing of him and his nature. And a reminder of that rebuke that gives the the Pharisees, you think that that you're going to find God in the scriptures. They testify about me. You're, you're, You're missing, you're missing me. Okay, if you know your Bible, but are you allowing the Bible to lead you to Jesus? God, Father, is stamping this relationship with the Son. In this moment, this is my Son. Not was my Son, not became my Son, not will be my Son, but is my Son Eternally past, always has been, always will be the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's breathtaking. Entering into the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have been in eternity past and through the work of salvation and creation and salvation are sharing themselves with us, with the people of God and with creation But more than that, it's the love there. Or not more, in addition to. Both are are strong pillars in the way that this word word is constructed. This is my son in whom I loved. Love, it is like he is my son and he is loved. Both equally, eternally true. The love of, of the father to the son is never in question. Never has been and never will be. When we're staring into the Trinity, we are staring into the perfection of love there. We've got to see just the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is being stamped right here, confirming to the disciples, you listen to Jesus because He is loved of me, of God. He has been loved by God the Father for eternity. So listen to Him. When He opens His mouth, listen to Him. When he has hard teaching, listen to him. When he tells you he's going to suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and rise from the dead three days later, listen to him. When he tells you to pick up a cross and carry it, that that's your way of experiencing life, to follow him, listen to him. When he tells you about the joys and the glories of heaven and when he articulates the horrors of hell, listen to him. When he tells you about what the nature of God is like and how we best honor God and live out holiness in this life, listen to him. Don't listen to any other voice. He now is the authority. And we as the church have the words of Jesus in our Bibles. Are we listening to the word of God as the authority that it is over our lives Or do we treat it like another book? Do we treat the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, like any other voice? We must come this morning and submit to that voice and to listen. To stop and to listen to Him. And in a blink, this whole supernatural experience disappears. And they're brought back down to earth. And they're all alone. 
It's an amazing experience seeing glimpse of the glory of Jesus in this way, in this cloud, and Moses, and Elijah, and his voice from heaven coming out of this cloud. It's amazing. And if they wanted some confirmation, they got it today. Jesus is who he says he is, and he's on a mission to die, and nobody is getting in the way of that. But it comes with some instructions we see in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They had a category for the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. But it was like a general resurrection at the end of time when everybody's resurrected and they can't make sense of this unique resurrection that Jesus alone is supposed to have happened to him. They can't make sense of Jesus uniquely rising from the dead. And they don't want to ask a question about that, probably because what happened last week, like they're treading on ground here, like don't want Jesus to call you Satan, so let's just be quiet. So they talk amongst themselves as they're coming down this mountain. But they finally do get up enough courage to ask Jesus another question. And that's where we see that our fourth Point, confirming the identity and mission of Jesus, and that is by the life and the death of John the Baptist. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Some think that this is a subtle way that the disciples are again trying to bypass the cross. They they know Elijah. They know that Elijah is supposed to come, and after Elijah comes, comes the kingdom of God. And so they're trying to piece it together still. They're, They're slow to understand. We're slow to understand. Okay, Elijah is supposed to come. We just saw Elijah on the mountaintop. There's this cross that Jesus keeps talking about. Why? And how does the cross fit in this? How does the cross fit inside of this? And what we see here, Jesus and the other Gospels, we learn that Elijah does come to restore all things, but Elijah is not Elijah. Elijah's coming uh, in the the spirit of Elijah, which we learn is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one, is the Elijah that was to come. John the Baptist was the forerunner of King Jesus. And Jesus points to John here. Yes, John has come to restore things, to be my forerunner. And he begins to talk about the sufferings of the Son of Man. What does the Bible say about the sufferings of Christ? He again is pointing back to Scripture. Something's supposed to happen to the Son of Man. He's supposed to suffer to bring about this kingdom. And then he points to the life and death of John. We studied that a few weeks ago. What happened to John? John stood for the kingdom of God. He stood for truth. He proclaimed a message of repentance. Turn from your sin. Worship Jesus. The king is here. He's coming after me. That was John's mission, to testify to the coming king and the coming kingdom. And what happens to John? He stands up to Herod. Herod doesn't like it. Herod wants to keep his 
illegal marriage. He gets put in jail. And then finally he's beheaded. John came. He stood for the truth. He brought the kingdom of God in his own way that God had called him to. And it ended up putting him on a path of suffering, being rejected, being put in prison and his head cut off. And Jesus is saying, that is a type, a pattern of me. I am to, I am to fulfill. I am everything that John was pointing to. There's some really remarkable ways that John's life parallels Jesus. But that's what he's saying here. Yes, the kingdom is, is coming. The kingdom of God is coming, but not through, not without suffering. Jesus once again affirming that he must suffer and die to bring the kingdom. Because he loves us that much. The disciples were needing some confirmation. Confusing, difficult, challenging teaching about suffering. They needed some confirmation and they got it, but they were still hard of understanding. They still can't piece it all together. And what they were needing was another glimpse of God's glory. A glory that would come on a different mountain not too long from now. Not the glory that's in transcendent splendor and light where an exalted king reigns, but in the glory of Mount Calvary, where we see a suffering servant on a cross. Not a mountain where Jesus' clothes turn dazzling white, but on a mountain where his clothes are ripped off and his naked flesh runs red with blood. Not the glory and the presence and the comfort of Elijah and Moses, but the glory of Christ being alone beside two criminals. And not the glory of hearing this voice coming out of this glorious crowd saying, this is my son, but Jesus being in silence and hearing only the cry of his own groans in intense agony that we cannot even understand and that groan being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that glory? Really? Is there glory right there? Is that the glory that we need to see? Because oftentimes we just want to see the mountaintop experience. The mountaintop glory. But right here, the Bible says, no, this this. This is the climax of God's glory. It is peaking right here because on the cross we are seeing the glory of God's free and sovereign grace and kindness and mercy and power and justice and holiness being poured out for sinners. It's the apex of love. What greater love does anyone have than he would lay down his life for his friends? much less to lay down his life for his enemies. And this is what Jesus has done, leaving his throne of glory in heaven, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped and reached for, but he, he gave all that up to come here, to be a servant, to be obedient to the point of death, to save a people. 
to ransom a people, to die for people, the innocent Lamb of God to die for sinners and wicked people like you and I. That's glory, church. You want to see glory, you look there and nowhere else. There's a glory in creation, sure there is. And it's beautiful and it's magnificent. But it doesn't touch this glory. The glory of self-substituting sacrifice for others. That's what God has done for us this morning in Christ. He gave his life so that we could live. He bore the punishment of God that we deserve so that now we can go free. This is God's glory. And we might be asking this morning, going through suffering, going through darkness. Does God care? Is God here? Is God with me? Is Jesus who he says he is? Does God love me? Does God have a plan for my life? And we might say, yeah, God, give me a burning bush. Give me a cloud that I can see. And God says, I've given you something so much more. It's right here. It's documented in the Holy Scriptures for us. Peter would say in 2 Peter, hey, I was there. I was there on that mountain. I heard the majestic voice. 2 Peter 1 says, but we have a more sure word today for you, church. A more sure word than some crazy experience on top of a mountain. That word being the prophecy and the articulation of the gospel in the Holy Scriptures. This is the sure word. If God has given us Christ Jesus, how, how, how much more would He give us everything else? He's given us the prize of the universe, His beloved Son. How much more would He give everything else? Three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead. Through death, He overcomes death taking all of our sins away and giving us life forever. That's the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The disciples couldn't see it. But one day Jesus says, when I rise, when I rise, then you'll tell people. Because right now it makes no sense. But when you see me come out of the grave, you won't be able to stop opening your mouth and telling people about me. And you will go far and wide and you will give your lives for the sake of the gospel. At that point, it will all make sense. Yes, suffering is a part of salvation. Yes, Jesus had to go to the cross. Yes, Jesus going to the cross was how he would glorify God and most display and execute his love for us. And yes, now I'm willing to go and give my life and spend my life for the glory of Jesus. Are we there this morning? Are we beholding the glory of Jesus? Seeing Him in the cross? How do we respond? Let's respond in worship first and foremost. We bow before this person, Jesus. He is no mere human. He is human fully, but He is also divine. Perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. The imprint and the nature of God to us. May we bow down. Not in terror, 
like these disciples on top of this mountain, but in humble, humble, grateful worship that our God has come near to us and we are not killed, we are saved. Jesus is approachable and accessible. He is the mediator of God's presence to us. May we worship him for that. And may we worship him in gratitude this morning because we have had the robes of our sin taken off and we've been given the robes of Christ where the Bible says we shine like stars in this crooked and perverse generation. Church, we shine. We've been clothed with Christ and we shine in the spiritual realm. And to the people of this world, they might not be able to see it because they don't have eyes, but we are shining God has made you to shine. There is no more filth in you. There is no more sin in you. We still struggle with indwelling sin, but according to how God sees you, He says, this is my beloved people in whom I am well pleased. I'm eternally pleased with you, church, God says. Your heavenly Father says to you this morning. We can be grateful. And then we open our mouths and we go for the glory of of our great God and for an eternal kingdom. We want more people to be there in the new heavens and the new earth. May we respond appropriate to this text in worship and in gratitude and in mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sending of your son into this world and for revealing your son to us, God, in the same way that you had to reveal yourself to these three disciples. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, you are revealing yourself to us this morning, pulling back the veil of our hearts, the scales of our eyes, causing us to behold the glory of your son, Jesus. And we are thankful, God. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot gaze upon this glory. But God, we praise you that you have opened up our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory. We thank you, God, that the cross displays the glory of your grace, the glory of your love and your holiness in perfection. And we've Respond and worship now, God, and ask you, Lord, to empower us as your people to testify to who you are, to your mission, to save us and to save this world, to exalt your Father, to bring the kingdom both now and forevermore. It's in your name we pray.